0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Scripture reading this morning, we will find in three passages in God's Word. We'll be first looking at Mark 10, the verses 17 through 34. And in that passage, we also will find the text for this morning's sermon. We will then be looking at Joshua 6, the verses 1 through 5, and lastly, Acts 2, the verses 40 through 47. So first, Mark 10, the verses 17 through 34. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have a treasure in heaven. than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, "Who then can be saved?" Jesus looked at them and said, "With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God." Peter said to him, "We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth," Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Let us now look at what is written in Joshua 6, the verses 1 through 5. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times, with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse, and the people will go up, every man straight in. Our third Bible passage we will find in Acts chapter 2, the verses 40 through 47. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The text for this morning's sermon we find in the first Bible passage that we read in Mark 10. We'll look specifically at verse 21, the second part, where Jesus says, Go, sell everything you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a radical command our Lord gives. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven. And come, Take up your cross and follow me. Why would Jesus say this? Is this a command that we also have to follow? Yes, beloved, it is. Salvation is by grace alone. It is free. But it is exactly for that reason that the price is so high. For this free gift is so wonderful that anything else is not worth possessing and therefore may not receive the love of our hearts. But this last statement is so hard. The theme of the sermon this morning is summarized as follows. The kingdom of heaven is free, and therefore it is so costly. We've got to look at three things. First, the background to Jesus' instruction. Second, the meaning of Jesus' instruction. And third, the fulfillment of this instruction. First of all, the background to Jesus' instruction. Jesus' instruction in our text forms the climax of his conversation with somebody about the topic of eternal life. This somebody, and we learn from Matthew and Luke that he was a young man, a ruler, had come running up to Jesus as Jesus was about to set out down the road. He had fallen on his knees in front of Jesus, and between gasps for air, he asked Jesus what he had to do to inherit eternal life. His was a good question, and a necessary one. This man was an Israelite, a child of the covenant, raised with the knowledge and teachings of the Old Testament. And so he knew about paradise. He knew about the fall into sin. He knew about God's righteous anger against sin. How was this sinner then to be right before God? It's the same question the church asks in Lord's Day 5 of the Heidelberg Catechism where it says, since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? How can we inherit eternal life? A good question. We don't know how long this rich young ruler had been looking for an answer, but now he comes to Jesus to seek an answer from him. He recognizes, no doubt, on the basis of what he has heard and seen about Jesus in the, in the past, that this rabbi would be able to give a good answer to his pressing question. So he runs. He wants to get to Jesus before Jesus hits the road. He runs and falls on his knees before Jesus. Here we see a sign of respect, a recogni- recognition that Jesus is a unique teacher, more than able to give the needed answer. His opening words also give the same recognition. He says, good teacher, as he's panting from his running, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? His esteem for Jesus was certainly evident. Good teacher, he says. And Jesus hooks in on that flattering statement. This Israelite wants to inherit eternal life. That is, this man wants to find favor with God. He wants to escape God's righteous anger. He wants to be restored to paradise. Obviously, you have to ask God the question, not people. You call me good teacher? No one can teach you a good answer to that question except God alone. For eternal life is something only God can give. And you, being a Jew, a covenant child... You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. You want to inherit eternal life? You want to escape God's anger? And you want to receive God's favor? Then listen to God's word. Do what he commands, and you will live. To which this young man gave this surprising answer. Teacher... All these things I have kept from my youth. It's at this point, congregation, that various commentators make things very confusing. We can take, for example, the explanatory notes you will find in the Reformation Study Bible or also the New Geneva Study Bible. And these Bibles are quite popular in our midst, and they have notes that are generally very worthwhile and helpful for personal and family Bible study. But on this passage... The note tells us that this young man had a religious outlook based on works righteousness. That is, these notes tell us that this Israelite thought he could earn eternal life. And given what we know of the Pharisees of the days of Jesus, such a mindset on the part of this young man seems plausible. But is that in fact the case here? Is Jesus addressing here a case of works righteousness? A case of Earning one's salvation. There are a number of factors that indicate that 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 is not the case. Let us look at three factors here. One, when the man first came to Jesus, he did not ask how he could earn eternal life, but he asked, how can I inherit eternal life? Verse 17. And there is a huge difference between those two words. We'll come back to the word inherit in a moment. Second factor in his reply, Jesus did not correct the young man's question as if it was a question built on a wrong doctrinal stand. Instead, we see here that Jesus answers the man's question exactly as it was posed. In his answer, Jesus states that the man actually has to do something in order to inherit life eternal, verse 19. And the third factor here is that Jesus. it says in verse 21 that Jesus loved this man. Jesus loved this man. That is hardly a response you would expect from the Savior that he would give to someone who thought he could earn his place in heaven. These three factors, congregation, tell us that the Jew, we find in verses 17 through 22, did not think that somehow he had to earn his own place in heaven. We need to take each of these three points and expand on them. The first point is related to the man's question. We said earlier, he did not ask how he could earn eternal life, but he asked how he could inherit eternal life. What does the word inherit mean? At this moment, let your thoughts go back to the days of Abraham in the Old Testament. When God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit. Verse 7. So, Abraham could walk through the land, and though in his days the land was inhabited by not just a few, but many Canaanites, he could know for sure that one day that land, although full of Canaanites, would be his inheritance. God had said so. So when the Israelites, many years later, were brought out of Egypt by God, they left to go to the land of their inheritance, the land that God had set aside for them. Exodus 32, verse 13. But what did Israel have to do to inherit the land? It's clear that they did not have to earn it. Neither in Egypt nor in the desert did the people have to meet certain standards in order to earn the promised land. That's obvious to us. An inheritance, by definition, is unearned. A father has property. Before he dies, he indicates who of his children is to get what. There's no element of earning in this matter. It's a question of inheriting Yet we know from our Bible that this doesn't mean that Israel had nothing to do in inheriting the promised land. That God in heaven wrote the land of Canaan to Israel's account in his will, if we can say it that way, involved no activity on Israel's part. That was simply a matter of his good pleasure. But once Israel crossed the Jordan into the promised land, the people most certainly had to do something to inherit their inheritance. What did they have to do? They had to fight. Yet not fight nilly-willy. They had to fight specifically as God had commanded, even if the commands at that moment made no sense to their human minds. So God tells them to march around Jericho once a day for six days and seven times on the seventh day and then shout, Does this make any sense to a military mind? If our Canadian troops in Afghanistan would try this, would it work? No. But this was God's command to Israel at that specific time. And for Israel to inherit the land, they had to obey God's command. And the result? God crowned their obedience with the gift of the city of Jericho. The walls fell flat before them. Now turning back to Our Bible passage in Mark, the rich young ruler in Mark 10 asks now what he has to do to inherit eternal life. Implicit in his use of the word inherit is his awareness that God has promised him eternal life. And that is very scriptural. When God made his covenant with Abraham and also his descendants after him, that also includes this young man. God said that he would be their God, and they in turn would be his people. Genesis 17, verse 7. As God is the living God, the people he has claimed for himself would live also. They would have life with him, eternal life. The sacrifices that God had instructed his people to bring to him in the tabernacle in the Old Testament days demonstrated to them how life with God would be possible. Life with God would be possible through the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And this was a point, was pointing out to the death of the coming Savior. This young man here in Mark 10, he knows these Old Testament promises. He knows he is an an heir to eternal life. But now his question is, given that this is my inheritance, What do I have to do to inherit this inheritance? God gives it to me in grace without me earning it. What do I now have to do to make it my own? Let it be fixed in our minds, brothers and sisters, that this is a very critical question. You and I are also children of God by covenant, and therefore we are heirs of all of God's promises in Jesus Christ, including eternal life. But there is nothing automatic in the covenant. You do not inherit God's promises in the covenant, including the forgiveness of sins and life eternal, without doing something yourself. No more than Israel could inherit the promised land without walking around Jericho. What this young man asked of Jesus is a question that every last one of us needs to ask also. And that's also why Jesus' answer is so vitally important to us. I said that the young man's question was critical. But just as critical is Jesus' response. For as was mentioned before, Jesus does not correct the young man's question. He does not indicate to this young man that he has a faulty theology and that somehow his question is caught up in a wrong mindset of how he could earn or have his inheritance. Rather, Jesus gives a straight-out answer, an answer that dictates that the young man indeed has to do something To inherit eternal life. What does Jesus say? In verse 19 he says to the young man, You know the commandments. That is, just as Israel could inherit the promised land only by obeying God's commands, and in that case it was marching around the city, so the heir to eternal life can inherit that life only by obeying God's commands. Which commands? Says Jesus, Do not commit adultery, do not murder, Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. These are the last six commandments of the ten commandments that God gave his people when he renewed his covenant with his redeemed people at Mount Sinai. These are known as the second table of the law. These six commandments spell out specifically what the life that God gives is supposed to look like in one's daily activities. Where the Lord gives life, the heart is renewed through the working of the Holy Spirit. And the result is that one has no pleasure in adultery. In fact, the person who is alive to God desires to be faithful, fully faithful to his spouse. Where the Lord gives life, where the heart is renewed through the working of the Holy Spirit, one does not murder nor permit murderous or hateful thoughts in one's heart. One instead loves his neighbor with all he has. Where the Lord gives life, where the Holy Spirit has renewed one's heart, you do not steal. You do not hog things for yourself, but instead you seek to do good to those around you. You share what you have, whether they deserve it or not. You see, where a person is alive to God, has life with God, and that's eternal life, you get a particular lifestyle. That lifestyle is described in the commandments God gave. And it is the responsibility of each covenant child to live the lifestyle God desires. No, you do not live this lifestyle to earn life. Rather, you live this lifestyle to make your inheritance your own. The young man in our chapter is an heir to life eternal, to life with God. And he wants to know what he must do to inherit his inheritance. What must he do? He must obey God's commands. He must make a point of living the kind of life that God has promised him in the covenant. Such a lifestyle will demonstrate that he has what God has promised, that he has his inheritance. We need to listen carefully here, beloved, for the truth is very precise. God states that there is a link between obedience and life, between life and obedience. What is the link? That obedience leads to life? That obedience is the road to life? It has been said so. But that, in the days of this young man, would be called Phariseeism. That mindset nowadays is labeled as Arminianism. That is saying that obedience earns you eternal life, that you have to make a contribution. And that's not biblical. Obedience to God's law is not the way to life. Obedience is the way of life. That is, those who have life make a point of obeying God's law. For those who are alive show their aliveness through their obedience. Israel had an inheritance, the promised land. They could show that they believed it was theirs only by obeying God's commands. And the result of their obedience was that the land fell into their laps. So too, this young man, he was an heir to God's rich promises, including the forgiveness of sins and life eternal, which he was questioning the master about. He could show that he embraced these riches by living according to God's commands. He could make his inheritance, his own, only through obedience. It's exactly the same for us today. God has established his covenant of grace with each one of us. He has made us heirs of all his riches, life eternal and glory. But can we make this inheritance our own only by obeying... But we can make this inheritance our own only by obeying God's commands. And that means specifically that we believe what he says and as a result we live as heirs of the kingdom of God in careful obedience to all of his commands. There's no such thing as covenant automatism. We have to do something to inherit our inheritance. We have mentioned that there were three factors by which to show that this man was not seeking to earn salvation. We have elaborated on the first two. Now let's take a harder look at the third factor. The young man says in verse 20 that he has kept all these commands since his youth. We read that and it strikes us as very arrogant. But it's not. We here together have said exactly the same thing when we sang this morning, when we took the words of David's Psalm 26 on our lips. In Psalm 26, it says, I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals. I have hated the assembly of the evildoers. Verses 2 through 4. Was David haughty when he said these things? Surely not. The Psalms are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And how could the Spirit then lay these words on David's lips? That is only possible, brothers and sisters, because of the renewing work of the Holy Spirit the renewing work that it produces in one's life. No, the renewed person does not become perfect, but the renewed person does develop a new lifestyle, a lifestyle that is in conformity with God's revealed will. That's to say, the person who makes, who God makes heir to his promises, including life eternal, is enabled through the Spirit to live according to the wealth of his inheritance. The young man before Jesus says that he lives according to the commands of his God. And so he testifies to the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart, just as David did. And that's why in that passage it says, Jesus loved him. Verse 21. For if the Spirit of God is at work in your heart, shall the Son of God not love that person? No, beloved, the young man of whom the Holy Spirit tells us in Mark 10... He did not embrace a theology of salvation by works. Here we find good biblical theology, theology of salvation by grace alone. Eternal life is not earned. Eternal life is inherited. And that means that, yes, we need to do something to receive what is ours. We can't sit on our hands and expect eternal life to simply fall into our lap. Jesus loves this man because he recognizes that God is at work in him. That's also why Jesus now encourages this young man. He encourages him to grow more in his faith. Jesus observed that though this man's theology was correct, there remained room for development, growth in God's service. Hence, you find the instruction in our text. Go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven. And then come, take up your cross, and follow me. What might Jesus mean with these words? That's our second point. The second point of our sermon is the meaning of Jesus' instruction. Two things need to be said here. In the first place, God's Old Testament command had been that there were to be no poor in Israel. As God had shown mercy to Israel in their poverty in Egypt and had given them this land flowing with milk and honey, as a result, so God's people by covenant, heirs as they were of eternal life, were to share of the abundance that each received with his neighbor who had little. In Jesus' day, we know that there were many beggars in Israel. And that shows a failure on the part of the well-to-do people in those days. That includes also this young man, this young ruler, who the Bible tells us was a rich man. He had great possessions, it says. No, this man had great possessions not because he stole, not because he defrauded his neighbor. He did well to his neighbor, helping in need, thanks to the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. But he had but a small beginning of the obedience that God requires. He could do more. He could show in his conduct that he was not at all attached to the things of this life, that he had inherited a treasure so great, so wonderful, that all earthly possessions are as nothing in the light of the great wealth. He could sell all he had and give to the poor, and so through his deeds show the poor something of the love that God had given him in granting him eternal life. Such works on his part would also assure him the more of his salvation. And his pressing question which he had for Jesus wouldn't press him so much anymore. He would be assured of his faith by its fruits. The second thing we should note here is this. Jesus speaks this word at a specific point in the history of salvation. It says in our passage that he was on the road, verse 17 and that's the road from Galilee to Jerusalem, where Jesus would be arrested, crucified, and ultimately killed. Already Jesus had told his disciples that soon he would be betrayed, killed, but also raised, Mark 8, 31, 9, 31. Here is a young man in whom the Spirit works, a young Israelite whom God loves, and therefore Jesus does also. And so Jesus invites then this young man to come along on the road, to follow him to his sacrifice on Calvary, to witness what is going to happen on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, how Jesus would pay for the sins and prepare a rich inheritance for a poor people. Things are happening in the kingdom of God. And this man who loves God should come and see it. So, give what you have to the poor. Don't let your, your wealth be a burden to you. Don't let your wealth be a hindrance to your inheritance. And come, follow me. But this self-emptying was more than the young man could muster. Verse 22 says, He was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The word Mark uses here to describe the young man is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe an overcast and stormy sky. That's his reaction. His face turns overcast, dark, gloomy. And away he went, away from Jesus, away from the good teacher, away from him who was about to go and lay down his life to obtain the exact inheritance that this young man was questioning Jesus about. And so we come to our last point, the fulfillment of Jesus' instruction. Jesus saw the young man go. He saw him leave with a stormy face. The young man wanted so much to inherit God's free gift of eternal life, but what he had to do to inherit it, it was so costly. Israel obeyed God's command to march around the city, although it made no sense, but giving away his earthly security and comforts, that was asking too much from this young man. And that's why Jesus turned to his disciples in verse 23 and told them, it was so hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. To give up everything, to sell all in order to inherit that one precious pearl, it takes a lot of self-denial. So concentrate for a moment, brothers and sisters, on our Lord Himself. It says that Jesus loved this young man. He loved him because He saw evidence of the Spirit renewing, of the Spirit's renewing work in His life. But see, when it came to the ultimate point of emptying himself in order to follow Jesus, this man states that the price is too high. He went away. He wasn't going to follow Jesus to the cross. What now? Shall Jesus still die for this young man? Shall he still lay down his life to obtain the inheritance that God promised this young man in the covenant of grace? Or shall the savior of the world take offense at this young man's response and also decline to go to the cross? The question is important, for you and I also fail as this young man did. We also are not so keen to give up all we have in order to follow Jesus to the sufferings of the cross. How does Jesus respond to us? Does he turn his back on us? Decline us part in the eternal inheritance he has obtained on the cross? Here, beloved, is the glorious gospel of Christ's mercy. Though this man, with his feet, as he walked away, told Jesus that the price of God's free grace was too high, Jesus carried on to the cross anyway. Verse 32, it says they were back on the road to Jerusalem. And Jesus told the twelve again that he would be delivered to the Gentiles. He would be mocked and he would be flogged and ultimately killed. In other words, the response of the young man did not discourage our Savior. Though Jesus certainly suffered through the young man's response, he carried on resolutely to Jerusalem and to the cross. On that cross, he did what no mortal can accomplish. As a camel cannot crawl through the eye of a needle, so a rich man cannot find his own way into the kingdom of heaven. Or for that fact, neither can a poor man but Christ opened the way. Through the shedding of His blood, He paid for sin and so obtained the favor of God for us who were bankrupt before God in our sins. As Peter writes, He, Christ, obtained for us an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. 1 Peter 1 verse 4. That inheritance makes us rich already. And that's in turn why in verse 30 of Mark 10 that the people of God will receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. It's what happened in the days of Pentecost. Those in the days of Pentecost who were redeemed in Jesus' blood, those who came to faith in Christ Jesus, at that moment they showed that they treasured his inheritance. They shared all they had with the brethren, even to the point of selling their possessions and goods and distributing them to all who had need. Here's the command of Jesus to the young man being fulfilled. Jesus said, sell your possessions and follow me. The young man did not. But in Pentecost, we read that the believers did that. In the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit made the redeemed of God taste how rich they were in the promises of the covenant. They tasted the wealth of eternal life that Christ had obtained for them. And so the riches of this earth were as nothing to them. Cheerfully, it says, they gave of their wealth as Christ had given of his. And in that manner, they showed what was really important to them. And so they also made it clear, not just to each other, but also to the broader community, that earthly treasures were not so important after all. Christ and the inheritance he obtained was much, much more important. And the public understood the message of their actions in those days of Pentecost. And they stood in awe of God and his saving work in Christ. And later on, when persecutions arose on account of the others' envy at the inheritance Christ had given his people, the Christians didn't pull their heads in at all. They continued to treasure God's gift in Jesus Christ, so much so that they were content even to the point of having to leave houses and lands and bank accounts and go elsewhere wherever the Lord gave them a place. You can see that in Acts 8. They demonstrated through their deeds that the inheritance of God was worth much more than any earthly treasure. And so they obeyed their God. They trusted and obeyed and let the pieces fall where they may. Evidence of the Spirit's renewing work in them. Salvation is free, brothers and sisters. It's an inheritance that Christ obtained with His blood. Because it's such a treasure, the cost is high, so very high. The Lord would have us give up all to follow Christ. At the same time, we're assured that the price is not too high. Christ went to the cross Even for rich people like us in North America, who at times feel so bound to our wealth. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit caused the brotherhood to give, caused them to treasure, to show that they treasured their heavenly inheritance so much that they gave their earthly inheritance away. The price of free grace is high, but by God's grace, not too high. Amen.